Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Hello, everyone. It's uh, really good to see you and to be with all of you. I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. We're really honored that all of you are here with us for our TMC seminar, where we're going to hear from uh, Professor Bruce Rogers Vaughn on a talk titled Capitalism and the Social Origins of Psychological Distress. Uh, we're excited that you're here with us. We recognize that this has been a busy and complex week in our country, not only locally, but with the presidential debate and with the breaking news of the president's COVID diagnosis. And realizing the weight of all of that on us, we are glad that you're here with us today to participate in this conversation. We also would invite you back uh, for in two weeks, we'll hear from Professor Lori Zola of the University of Chicago on a talk entitled Duty and Justice in Jewish Bioethics the questions of vaccines and pandemics. Today, that we're very privileged to hear from uh, Professor Rogers Vaughn. Uh, Bruce Rogers Vaughn is Associate Professor of the Practice of Pastoral Theology and Counseling at Vanderbilt Divinity School. His research interests include psychodynamic theory and clinical practice, psychoanalytic theories of religion, grief studies, the importance of theology in the care of souls, tradition for contemporary pastoral care and counseling, and the complex formative influences between politics, economics, psychology, theology, psychotherapy, intersectionality, and religious practices of care. Um, his work explores the impact of contemporary capitalism, neoliberalism, on assumptions and practices regarding mental health, human suffering, relationships, the self, spirituality, and the meaning and purpose of care. And having grown up in Southern Appalachia in agrarian and working class communities, He's also concerned about what he sees as the relative lack of awareness of class and inequality in academic theology and psychology. He's the author of an outstanding book called Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age that appeared in 2016 and has written a number of articles in, uh, in journals such as the Journal of Pastoral Theology, Pastoral Psychology, Sacred Spaces, and Reflective Practice. Um, in addition to his academic work at Vanderbilt, Professor Rogers Vaughn has uh, spent a, a, a many years as a practicing pastoral counselor and uh, also as a chaplain in hospital and healthcare settings. Uh, he is an ordained Baptist minister uh, who currently worships in a Presbyterian church. And uh, Bruce, we are so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome to Duke, and we really look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks, Warren. I warned Warren ahead of time that I would be your pirate presenter today. I had a surgery a few weeks ago for a detached retina of my eye, and so therefore the patch, um, but hopefully that will not detract too much from the presentation. I want to begin this presentation by raising two questions. It's not obvious that these have to do with capitalism, but I would insist that they do. The first question is, is psychological distress best imagined as a disease, which is the predominant view today? 
The second question is, does seeing it as a disease reduce stigmatization? It seemed appropriate to me to begin with uh, one of Duke University's own, Dr. Dan Blazer, who taught in the psychiatry department for many years at Duke in the medical school. Uh, he had an excellent book published in 2005 called The Age of Melancholy, Major Depression and Its Social Origins, in which he pointed out that the publication of the DSM-3 in 1980 uh, noted the triumph of the disease model in psychiatry. He helpfully noted that uh, a movement called social psychiatry and its companion community psychology were prominent up through the 1960s, declined in the 70s, and now have virtually disappeared to be displaced by an emphasis on biochemical, neurological, and genetic origins of pathology. Uh, these are my words at the top. I, I take the meaning of this to mean we have traded care of cells for treating disease uh, in this current paradigm. I would also point out that although Dr. Blazer did not mention it in his book, uh, this timing is completely congruent with the neoliberal um, sort of revolution that occurred in the United States and the UK beginning exactly in 1980. One of the, uh, the advocates of the disease model for psychiatric distress um, have made as part of their argument in its behalf that it would lead to more effective treatments and to the alleviation of these forms of distress. So a question I would raise in the beginning is that over the last four decades, we've spent billions of research dollars on medications, empirically supported treatments, neuroscience, genetics, and, and so forth. And yet during this time, the prevalence of depression, addiction, and other psychological distress has increased dramatically, which I think uh, tends to invalidate um, this argument for the disease model. Uh, I'm gonna kind of skip this addition, uh, this slide on the Lancet uh, quote, and you can come back to that if you wanna watch the recording later and get to this article, which appeared in Clinical Psychology Review in 2013, the title being The Biomedical Model of Mental Disorder, a Critical Analysis of Its Validity, Utility, and Effects on Psychotherapy Research, in which the author, Brett Deacon, concluded, national anti-stigma campaigns have promoted the disease like any other message to convince the public that mental disorders are non-volitional biological illnesses for which sufferers do not deserve blame and discrimination. This approach, he says, has been an unequivocal failure in reducing stigma. So another argument that advocates of the disease model have had, and this has been kind of an ethical argument, that we needed the disease model in order to destigmatize mental illness. So apparently from the research we have available, that hasn't worked very well either. Ethan Waters in his book has noted that one of the most successful exports the United States has had has been our particular forms of mental illness that we have exported to the world, which points to, he says, the, the social origins of disease being um, a stronger factor than any other markers, such as biological ones. The point I wanna make in this slide is on the right-hand bottom corner 
that whether we attribute the sources to chemical imbalances or the brain or genetics, or even if you use a psychodynamic interpretation like internalized relational experiences, this uh, model locates the problem inside the individual and only the individual can do something about it. Uh, they're responsible to get it fixed. So the question I would raise is what has happened? Well, I've already given away my hand in my comment on Dan Blazer's book. Uh, what happened was uh, the neoliberalization of society, especially in the United States, beginning in the 70s and the early 80s and in the United Kingdom, which has accelerated since then and gone global. I won't present all the documentation, obviously, in this short uh, presentation today, but uh, there is plenty of documentation in the book, Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age. Interestingly, most of the slides I present today will be publications that have come out since my book that I think confirm much of what I was trying to say. So what is neoliberalism? Um, I want to begin with sort of an illustration of what neoliberalism is instead of starting just with a definition. As we know, artists such as um, novelists, painters, uh, cinematographers, and other people working with the visual arts often catch on to the changes in the zeitgeist before the rest of us do. So I want to play uh, a short clip from the movie Network. Uh, the movie Network came out in 1976, which was just as neoliberalism had caught hold among major think tanks in the United States and Britain, and in some economics departments that were quite prestigious, such as at Harvard, University of Chicago, and Stanford. This is when this movie came out. Um, the scene I'm going to play is the, the chairman of the, of the network is sitting down one of the celebrities for his network and putting him in his place. And what follows is essentially, if, if neoliberalism could preach a sermon, this is the sermon that it would preach. So, and I think it does preach a sermon. So pay special attention to not only the content of the sermon, but the religious tone of the sermon. And notice when it leads to it, it actually does lead to an invitation at the end. And when it does so, it, it brings the focus to where we want to talk today, which is on what is the impact of this on individual psychology. So in that speech, Ned Beatty uh, refers to, he says, there's only one holistic system of systems I want to give other language to what he's pointing to there, and the word is hegemony. Um, it's, it's a word that was created, an idea created by Antonio Gramsci. And Nancy Fraser gives a, a very nice summary of it. She says, hegemony is Gramsci's term for the process by which a ruling class makes its domination appear natural by installing the presuppositions of its own worldview as the common sense of society as a whole. You may have noticed in the, the neoliberal sermon how many times he made a point to say that this is the natural order of things today, that this has been true since human beings crawled out of the slime. So the whole thing is naturalized. It's just this is the way things are. 
and we all come to accept that that's the way things are. It's important to understand this idea of hegemony because without it, it's, it's hard to see how the dots connect. Uh, in this whole holistic system of systems, individuals and their individual psychology and human relationships are also part of this system. As far as the definition of neoliberalism is concerned, uh, this is probably the shortest, um, most pointed one by Daniel Stedman Jones, who teaches um, at the London School of Economics in a book aptly titled Masters of the Universe. He says neoliberalism is the free market ideology based on individual liberty and limited government that connected human freedom to the actions of the rational, self-interested actor in the competitive marketplace. What I would suggest to you is that this sentence, the, the words of this sentence are now so familiar to us that this sentence no longer shocks us. However, I would suggest that if any Christian theologian worth their salt began to dissect this sentence, they would be horrified. I'm not going to do that right here. It would take too long. But, but take, for example, human freedom. Human freedom in this definition is defined not as freedom of conscience, not as freedom of religion, not as even freedom to vote. It is defined purely as the individual making choices rational choices in the marketplace. That's what freedom becomes. Well, where did neoliberalism begin? There's lots of histories of neoliberalism now out there. All of them begin with the familiar narrative that it began in the 1920s and 30s with um, the Walter Lippmann Colloquium in Paris in 1933, where the term neoliberalism was born later on the Mont Pelerin Society and Friedrich von Hayek. Um, but the best history written so far is this one by Quinn Slobodian, which just came out two years ago. Slobodian is the first historian to ask the question, why did these ideas emerge at this particular time in history? And he said the reason that it emerged was the breakup of the old colonial system. So in, in the 1920s and 30s, nationalist, socialists, and democratic movements around the world were overturning the colonial order. And so world economic elites said, what are we going to do about this? And they came up with a very ingenious solution. They basically said to each other, well, good riddance. We don't need the old colonial order anyway. It was inefficient. It was, it was too costly to send out militaries to overthrow and annex territories and to expro expropriate the uh, labor and the resources of a country. Uh, we can do this just as effectively by uh, establishing a world banking system, a finance system that would subjugate nations uh, just as effectively without firing a shot. And, and 60 years later, that is exactly what has been achieved. Note also his comment that neoliberal capitalism is anti-democratic at its heart. People talk about the equivalency of capitalism and democracy, but this is simply not the case. Uh, neoliberalism is all about how a small economic elite can maintain control of the planet.
In terms of economics, uh, Kean Birch has summarized it probably the best. He says, uh, in economics, neoliberalism boils down to three interrelated things. Antitrust laws are suppressed and global not monopolies arise, which actually erodes market competition. We say it's a free market. It's actually not. It's controlled by a small handful of global uh, monopolies. The second element is that the economy shifts from entrepreneurship to rentiership, which I'll say more about in a moment. And the third uh, leg of the stool, so to speak, is that this economic and political order is controlled by a bureaucracy of contracts and contract law. So I'll speak briefly to those elements. First, monopolies. One example of this, and we could give many, uh, the media market. In 1983, and this is in the United States, 90% of the media market was owned by 50 companies. By 2018, that same 90% of the media market was owned by only five companies. And here they are, Comcast, Disney, Time Warner, 20th Century Fox, National Amusements. But notice uh, the, the footnote at the bottom. Um, a couple of summers ago, uh, Disney bought 20th Century Fox. So now 90% of the market is owned by only four companies. I put this slide up as a reminder of how neoliberalism camouflages the fact that monopolies are in control. So to the average public uh, walking down the street, for example, and seeing this display, we see many logos of many companies every day. So we would see this uh, sign for AT&T and Time Warner and think, oh, these are two different companies. Uh, AT&T is a monopoly in and of itself, which is true. But the vast majority of people don't realize that AT&T is simply a subsidiary of Time Warner. And this is true down the line. I mean, monopolies control everything now from batteries to sunglasses to paper goods to everything we can imagine, including the internet and the banking system. So uh, that second um, leg of the stool was rentiership. Uh, Sayer defines a rentier as a person who derives unearned income from ownership of existing assets or resources. Uh, neoliberalism disguises the fact that there's even such a thing as unearned income. It tends to make all income exactly the same, treated as of equal value. But some people, rentiers, actually earn income in their sleep without any labor. Uh, and they do it by owning existing assets and resources and charging rent for other people to have access to this. Now, this is not simply in housing. Usually when we use the word rent, we think of housing. Uh, this is also uh, access to things like education, healthcare, knowledge, the internet, um, healthcare, everything we can imagine we're having to pay rent on to have access to. And finally, this is all brought together by a legal system. This book just came out last year by Katerina Pister, who teaches at the law school at Columbia. And she notes that with the right legal coding, any object claim or idea can be turned into capital and lawyers are keepers of the code. And she actually says that the feudal calculus still lives and breeds, but its habitat, its habitat is wealth, not land. 
So basically she's saying this is the new feudal system, um, except instead of it, instead of it involving the enclosure and ownership of land, it involves the enclosure and ownership and of access to money. So what are the consequences of this? First, there is job reduction due to outsourcing and globalization. There is suppression of wages for the workers who remain. There's increasing debt for the vast majority of households, and I would add corporations. Corporate debt has never been higher than it is right at this moment in the United States. Corporate, corporations and powerful elites control governments and global financial institutions. So there's the public-private partnerships that we hear about. And finally, uh, the result is unprecedented economic inequality. You've probably seen graphs like this all across the internet. Uh, I had an, an updated version of this graph, but could not locate it. Uh, the line you see here is uh, refers to the United States and is the percentage of the total income, annual income that the top 10% of households took home every year. And we see that uh, just before, here's the uh, stock market crash and uh, it drops with, with the implementation of the New Deal. And here we are in the area that I'm talking about, 1977 to 82, where neoliberal policies begin to be implemented and we see the increase of income inequality ever since. And after 2012, this has gone even higher. So high that the three richest Americans now hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country. Um, this is um, uh, Gates, Buffett, and I think the person we're not seeing here is Jeff Bezos. We see his feet. This is true of the rest of the planet. So Oxfam International has pointed out that since 2015, the richest 1% has owned more wealth than the rest of the planet so that eight men now own the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of the world. I wanted to bring this up today to say that um, capitalism, especially in its neoliberal form, literally capitalizes on disasters. This is true whether the, whether the disaster is made by human beings or whether it is a natural disaster, such as a viral pandemic. So for example, uh, those who are extremely wealthy are able to uh, rake in deals during a time when other people are having to cough up money. So since the onset of COVID-19 from March to August, the uh, wealth of the top 12 richest individuals in the US grew 40% during this period of time. These 12 individuals in the US are now collectively worth $1 trillion which is greater than the gross domestic product of Belgium and Austria combined. And remember, this is happening simultaneously with the losses of tens of millions of jobs and also the reduction of income for many more Americans, even than those who lost their jobs. So uh, COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic is making inequality worse. A study came out uh, sponsored by Rand Corporation just two weeks ago that you might want to know about. Um, I've embedded the link on the slide, so if you play the recording back later, 
you should be able to find this online. You can download it for free. It's about 61 pages. This was summarized in an article in Time Magazine where the author said, like many of the virus's hardest hit victims, the United States went into the COVID-19 pandemic racked by pre-existing conditions, affraying public health infrastructure, inadequate medical supplies, and employer-based health insurance system unsuited to the moment. These and other afflictions contributed to the death toll, but in addressing the causes and consequences and its uneven impact, the elephant in the room is extreme income inequality. What I want to point out in this slide is all these factors, the fraying public health infrastructure, inadequate medical supplies, the health insurance system, all of these are also due to neoliberal policies being implemented. Uh, not only, uh, it's not limited just to the income inequality. So how significant is this inequality from 1975 to 2018? Um, the study shows that $50 trillion worth of wages have been transferred uh, from the bottom 90% wage earners to the top 10% and especially to the top 1%. What is the relevance of all this for psychological distress and suffering? Well, for one thing, uh, economic inequality, just looking at the big picture, is a marker of social well-being. The gold standard for this was um, the metastatistical analyses done by Wilkinson and Pickett, two epidemiologists in the United Kingdom. They published this in 2009 in a book called The Spirit Level. They took the 21 wealthiest in, um, economies in the world, the wealthiest ones. And they asked the question, uh, what would be the impact of income inequality on social well-being? And the definition for them of social well-being are these indices on the left. And you'll notice it includes toward the bottom mental illness, including drug and alcohol addiction. And the line, uh, the red line you see here is the line of statistical significance. Uh, greater income inequalities on the right, worse social conditions at the top. And you can see where the United States is in the upper corner. If you restrict this as they did to just uh, mental illness and addiction, the line of statistical significance is even steeper. Again, with the United States right at the top. Uh, this has been replicated by many others. This author, for example, this researcher, uh, correlated income inequality just with depression, the incidence of depression, and found a similar line of statistical significance. Uh, this is the book that I credit with beginning me, uh, with getting me started on this quest. Ale uh, Bruce Alexander is a Canadian psychologist and in 2010 had this book published, The Globalization of Addiction. Um, and though he's an avowed atheist, he admitted to stealing the subtitle from Jesus, A Study in Poverty of the Spirit. Um, Alexander argued in this book that addiction is not a disease. It is actually an adaptation to social dislocation. And he pointed out that neoliberalism has, quote, created a produced an unprecedented worldwide collapse of psychosocial integration. 
He also said that in a neoliberal society, addiction is best understood as a political problem rather than a medical or criminal one. And I would say this has been replicated across the board in mental illness research, not only uh, restricted to addiction, but depression, anxiety disorders, and uh, other disorders. Uh, these, I would argue, are better understood as political problems today more than they are simply medical problems. I could talk about many other sources to back up this. Uh, these are other examples of research. These uh, citations on the left actually do not come from the book, The Status Syndrome, which is another excellent book by an epidemiologist, Michael Marmot in the UK. But notice the uh, income, uh, the uh, study on the bottom left, uh, which appeared in Psychological Science, one of the most empirical US-based psychological journals, which concluded that the synergistic effects of inequality, individual responsibility, and consumer cues causes declines in sociometric status, which they said funds shame-based spirals leading to depression and anxiety. The thing I want to highlight here is we've been talking about income inequality, but here the researchers begin to introduce cultural changes. So the synergy between income inequality and individual responsibility, the emphasis on individual responsibility coupled with consumer cues causes these shame-based spirals. So this brings us to look at not just the the economic effects of neoliberalism and how that links to psychological distress, which it certainly does, but how neoliberalism shapes culture. In other words, it's the water we swim in and shapes what we think it means to even be a human being or to put a fine point on it. What does it mean to be a good human being as opposed to a bad human being? This is highlighted in a quote from the New York Times from a couple of years ago where the author says the relentless focus on the individual combined with an increasingly harsh economic environment for the ordinary person has proved toxic for our mental health. We individualists are great at crediting, crediting ourselves for victories, but we're just as good at blaming ourselves for failure. And today, exacerbated by the rise of social media, more and more of us are feeling like failures. So here toward the end, I wanna highlight two papers. Uh, we could put many, many others up, believe me. But these two papers are good examples of how the culture of neoliberalism is shaping uh, individual psychology. Uh, many years ago, uh, the decolonial critical thinker, Franz Fanon, who was a psychiatrist, talked about how in uh, colonialism, it wasn't just territories that were colonized, but people's minds were colonized. Well, he could not have imagined what we're seeing under neoliberalism, how much more efficiently individuals' minds are colonized by this cultural system, or as Ned Beatty said in his speech, one holistic system of systems. So this particular article is entitled The Psychology of Neoliberalism and the Neoliberalism of Psychology. And they point out uh, on the left four characteristics of neoliberalism and how, in the column in the middle, 
they impact psychological experience. So, for example, radical abstraction of individuals from place, time, and their social and material context. We, uh, we basically pretend individuals are not bound to certain contexts. If we think of it as a monopoly board, everybody starts on go. Everybody has equal opportunity. And notice that this leads to relational mobility and conditional identification. So individuals under neoliberal cultures feel more at liberty to uh, cut ties uh, with relationships, to disidentify with collective solidarities. For example, unions or neighborhood associations or civic organizations, and I would add churches and religious congregations uh, or religion in general. Uh, secularization, I ar argued in my book, is actually a myth uh, where people are not becoming more secularized. Uh, spirituality is still out there. It's just that people are cutting ties with so-called organized religion. The second feature of the neoliberal self, or what Dardot and Laval, the French theorists, call the neo-subject, is the entrepreneurial self. Basically, we've all become uh, our own little human capitals, our own brands. I had a psychotherapy patient a few months ago who said he was walking by a middle school playground that morning and heard uh, two middle school students literally getting into a fight. And one of them was screaming at the other, you're stealing my brand. And now we're talking about 12, 13 year old kids. So this is how this mentality has seeped into our minds. Uh, the third element here is a growth imperative. Um, Neoliberal uh, capitalism is a, an ideology of never-ending growth, and it imposes upon individuals an expectation that they too should be growing. So growing is not just an option, it's a mandate under neoliberal cultures. And if you're not growing, you're basically seen as failing. And the final uh, feature of neoliberalism here is affect management which is extremely important when it comes to uh, the production of psychological distress. So many researchers have discovered that neoliberalized cultures emphasize what's called high arousal positive affect or HAP states, H-A-P, such as excitement, optimism, and enthusiasm. These are indices not just of health notice, but also morality. So you're thought to be a good person as long as you stay energized and excited and happy. And you're not a good person if you're depressed, sad, or grieving, uh, which leads people to be even more depressed because they judge themselves. The second paper I would highlight, uh, the title seems innocuous enough. It doesn't seem like it would pertain to our topic. This occurred in another quite empirical psychological journal in the US that is published by the American Psychological Association. The journal is Psychological Bulletin. The title of the article being Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time, a Meta-Analysis of Birth Cohort Differences from 1989 to 2016. But notice the abstract. 
From the 1980s onward, neoliberal governance in the United States, Canada, and the UK has emphasized competitive individualism, and people have seemingly responded in kind by agitating to perfect themselves and their lifestyles. This was a huge study involving almost 42,000 college students in the United States, Canada, and Britain over this period of years. So it was a longitudinal study. And uh, here we're in brief some of the findings. Uh, this one's worth quoting in its entirety. The caveat emptor of neoliberalism lies in its meritocratic starting point. The perfect life and lifestyle encapsulated by achievement, wealth, and social status are available to anyone provided you try hard enough. According to neoliberal meritocracy, those who reach the top schools and colleges or gain entry into occupations offering the most profitable employment receive their due rewards of wealth and social status. For those who do not reach such educational and professional heights, the doctrine of meritocracy dictates they are less deserving and their poor achievement reflects their inadequate personal abilities. Uh, I, actually, I think I will skip the rest of this quote and get to the results with psychopathology. The results of this say the researchers are young people are experiencing higher levels of depression, anxiety, and suicide. They're reporting more loneliness and present to clinicians with eating disorders and body dysmorphia at a higher rate than generations before. I'll end with just some exhibits, um, data that are probably already familiar to you. I'm not gonna follow this link uh, to the online source because it would take too long, but drug overdose deaths in the US um, in 1980 were about 8,000 per year. In 2016, they're 65,000 per year. So we actually have more drug, drug overdose deaths in the United States today then people die in car wrecks, or we have past peak gun deaths, and we have past peak deaths from HIV infections um, with drug overdose deaths alone. Loneliness studies. So Cigna conducted a study that was published uh, in 2018. Again, a large sample size, 20,000 adult, adults, that found that about 50% of US citizens reported feeling alone or left out always or sometimes. And the surprising finding uh, was that the younger you are, the more likely you are to be lonely. Uh, this was discovered also in the UK to such a degree that then Prime Minister Theresa May appointed uh, a minister for loneliness who was actually in charge of trying to alleviate loneliness in Britain. Exhibit C would be suicides. Uh, this chart does not seem to uh, show an incredible increase, but... Sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Well, my watch is talking to me. Uh, sorry, Siri. Um, this would not seem to be... Uh, a radical increase, but an epidemiologist would look at this chart and you know what in their pants, uh, because the upshot is this, that despite the adoption of antidepressants since the 80s, suicide rate has risen by 24% between 1999 and 2014. We're running out of time. I wanna leave time for Q&A, so I'm not gonna go into what I call third order suffering in the book, but I'm arguing basically that psychological distress is not only quantitatively 
increased under neoliberal culture, but is qualitatively different than the kind of sufferings that have gone on before. You'll have to read the book for that. I want to raise the question, are mental illnesses such as depression and addiction actually forms of resistance or protest towards social and political conditions? I would hasten to add that they're not, they're not uh, effective forms of resistance because, like I said, people blame themselves for being depressed these days or addicted. But I do think it's, it's a very uh, inchoate form of the beginning of a pushback. Uh, and as far as regulating our own affect, uh, William Davies at Goldsmiths in London has said, the relentless fascination with quantities of subjective feeling can only possibly divert critical attention away from broader political and economic problems. Rather than seek to alter our feelings, now would be a good time to take what we've turned inwards and attempt to direct it back out again. Um, toward the end here, I would say that Wilkinson and Pickett's latest book, I just want to show you I'm not the only one saying this. Uh, this book was published in 2019, and they concluded that dramatic increases in psychological and interpersonal distress uh, is due to, quote, the almost uncontested rise of neoliberalism since the late 70s. This is a poster that came out um, a few years ago in a, an activist event, feeling sad and depressed. Are you anxious, worried about the future, feeling isolated and alone? You might be suffering from capitalism. I put this slide in just to make you aware that a few months ago, um, Eugene McCarraher at Villanova University, a historian, published this uh, doorstop of a book at 700 pages. Uh, the Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And I agree with him completely and said so in my book that uh, capitalism today functions essentially like a religion. So I, know I want to end by contrasting this with uh, the Gospels, um, some of the words of Jesus. I remarked in my book that this last passage on this slide it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to inherit the kingdom of God. The last time I heard that preached literally was at Welcome Hill Baptist Church in rural Cherokee County, Alabama, where the preacher said that is literally true. He said that it's hard to get in the kingdom of heaven if you're wealthy. Um, Jesus famously said in the Gospels, you cannot serve God in money. I wonder what part of that sentence some of us don't understand. And uh, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, we have the phrase, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As I have remarked in other places, that by itself would uh, be the end of capitalism as we know it, because money today is based on an international debt system. And uh, Warren, I think I'm supposed to turn it over to you. Chris, thank you so much that was um that was an incredibly rich talk and uh so grateful to you for for giving it we said to say there's a lot of things i'd like to ask you uh, but I, i'd love for you to, to hear you talk about how you put this into practice as a pastoral counselor so when patients come when clients or patients come to you for care how do you recognize the effects of neoliberalism and how do you address this in mm -hmm. conversation well obviously i don't go into a lecture on neoliberalism in my psychotherapy sessions um, 
but what I do is often um, ask probing questions with people about the material conditions of their lives. You know, what is going on with their work? What kind of relationships uh, do they have, not only in the workplace, but in their families and in their communities? And uh, try to make some links between, say, if they're depressed, uh, their depression and the conditions surrounding them. Um, I've also discovered, uh, Warren, that people are actually much more open to um, interpretations that tie their feelings to social conditions, including uh, larger pictures like the economy. Uh, they're more open and understanding of these interpretations than they are, you know, internal family systems, for example, or some other psychological jargon. This just makes a lot more sense to people. Um, and they, they seem to make much more headway in therapy, uh, at least if they stop blaming themselves for their depression, that's a start to, uh, to being somewhat less depressed. A good question. I'm using this more in therapy. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm.